Well, tonight we get into what is oddly a kind of a fun part of our study. <laughs> um, it seems kind of weird, but it always ends up that way every time I lead this study that the people are having a little bit of fun with it. Uh, you might say, we're talking about, we're going to finish up the study on sin and death. And I say, well, what's so fun about that? Well, we'll find out. Um, you might be a different group than the others. We're on the second page. We're going to first talk about the Christian in sin and overcoming sin in our life in that warfare against sin. And then we're going to talk about death, more specifically. Uh, and we're going to really try to zero in on a couple of different truths with regard to death. And so let's move very quickly through this. Uh, first of all, um, it is evident from God's word that Christians do, in fact, sin. Does that surprise any of you? Is there going to come a time in this world where you will be in a condition or state where that is no longer happening in your life? This is a question, and this is called the perfectionism doctrine. Uh, I know at least one group, the Nazarenes, that teach this, that true mature faith eventually should get to a point where you stop sinning, that sin is no longer in your life. And there's a, a goodly number of people other than the Nazarenes who hold to that position uh, but it is very evident from God's word on at least two occasions. Remember, the first John is written to my little children, that is believers in Jesus Christ, young perhaps, but still believers. It says that if you say you have not sinned, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. That perhaps uh, when we get to the state of what we think is sinless, it just means that we have gotten to a full deception, that, the tr that we have deceived ourselves to such an extent we think that we aren't sinning anymore. Uh, when the more I study God's word, the more I discover, wow, I should be doing this, I should be doing this, and this isn't in conformity with God's word, and it penetrates deeper. Now, in terms of blatant sin, if you want to use that, I hate using that, those kinds of comparative terms when it comes to sin, but when we talk about Christians doing gross sin, uh, uh, moral, and I think all sin is immoral, so uh, those kinds of sin we might uh, say, well, that should not be our experience. And in fact, we exercise church discipline against those that are in habitual gross sin. Uh, that is of a public nature, and we certainly address those. But we also recognize that we all deal with sin uh, at some level or another. And 1 John 1 is where we come to an understanding that 1 John written to believers... It's not written to unbelievers, but to believers. Remember, he's writing to, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And one of the evidences of Christ's work in you is that uh, you will recognize your sin. In verse, chapter 1, verse 8, says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the first person plural in those verses. So who is the author including in this? Himself. John himself, the, who is writing God's word, is including himself, our sins. We need to confess our sins. We need to recognize there is sin in our life. And that we are in this combat, we are in this warfare against sin that will not ultimately be victorious in until we receive a new body. And this is reflected in Romans chapter 7 where we have... Paul talk about the conflict between his flesh and his will. That his, his will wants to do one thing, his flesh wants to do another, and there's that constant warfare. And Who will deliver me from this body of death? And 
of course, praise the Lord, he will one day deliver us from the body of death. Now, when we talk about perfectionism, the underlying theology of it is actually correct. And that is that the Christian is no longer under the power of sin. All right. Uh, and we're no longer under the penalty, three P's, penalty, power, and presence. Uh, we're not under the power of sin. We're not under the penalty of sin. Uh, we're not under the penalty because Christ paid for our sin. So the penalty of sin is death, eternal death. And we understand that that penalty has been removed through Jesus Christ. And then the power of sin. And this is, often leads to think, well, if sin has no power over us, then we should have absolute victory over sin all the time because it's powerless. But there are many powerless things that have an enormous amount of influence on you and affect your life all the time. They cannot grapple you and force you, but they can influence you towards a certain position. And, and in that sense, they have a latent power that we'll call influence. And so our sin nature has been put to death, but it hasn't been buried. That is the illustration I use with young people, and I usually use it with regard to a dead animal. I'll bring a dead animal with me to camp, uh, or I'll find one while I'm at camp, and I have a whole sermon series on it built around, uh, uh, usually it's a, a rabbit, a squirrel, something that's died, uh, roadkill usually, and I have them write uh, uh, eulogies for the roadkill, and we make up songs and poetry about the roadkill. So we really have empathy for the roadkill. But we also recognize that during the week it starts to stink. I said, anybody want to sleep with the roadkill? You want to take it to bed with you? You want to have it sit beside you while you're eating your meal? Oh, no, it stinks. It's nasty. It's disgusting. It's death. I said, but it's dead. It can't hurt you, can it? Well, yes, it can hurt you. Your sin nature, though dead, still has influence, and it can still hurt you. It still has to be warred against. And so while God has taken away the power of sin, the presence of sin is not gone yet. The presence of the flesh is still there. We wait for that time when we are released from the presence of sin. And so we have... The sin of the world, the flesh, our flesh, and the devil uh, tempting us and moving us. And so we are engaged in this warfare. Uh, and while we should be increasingly more victorious in that warfare, uh, ultimately its presence will not completely be gone until we are in Christ's presence. And so uh, how does a dead thing influence you? How does... You are reacting to what? So physically, how does a dead thing bother you? I already mentioned one thing. It smells bad. Okay? And so you're not going to want to have the aroma around you. And it might sicken some people if you've walked into a situation where there's been uh, a death that hasn't been buried. The presence of death is still there in the room and it's been there for some time. That's a very sickening smell. It's hard to get out of your mind, out of your mentality. If you've ever had to smell that uh, and come into a room where there's been death that hasn't been dealt with, it cleaned up for a long time, that is a very powerful smell. The smell of decaying flesh is very strong. But what else? Besides the odor, that's one example I gave you. How else does death influence you? Poison you. Okay, it can poison you. 
And the illustration I always give people is that one of the powerful death sentences of the Roman Empire was to tie a murderer to his dead victim's body, flesh-to-flesh contact. So if you murdered somebody, one of the possible death, pen- death penalties, you know, you think of hanging on the cross was bad, you get tied skin to skin with the dead person you killed. And what happens is, is their decaying flesh starts decaying your flesh. And you literally die of rotting to death. Okay? And you, the decay of that flesh infects your flesh and you rot to death from the outside in as they rot to death from the outside, inside out. So that was one of the gorier death penalties of the Romans. They were really good at putting people to death, weren't they? To know how to do it painfully and long and make you really suffer. And so it has that influence. It can poison you, infect you. How else? All right, you got to look at it. Even just looking at it is, uh, has effect on us. And so we have to look at sin, don't we? It's all around us. We look at it, and, and it influences us. It impacts us. Sometimes that look can be enticing. And we hate it, but it's also enticing because the flesh is still there. It's dead, it's powerless, but it's present. And we have the capacity to, uh, to bring into subjection. Okay, So a dead body... Is it going to reach up and trip you? It's not going to grab you, but if you're walking by in the dark, it can trip you, right? If you're not aware of its presence and you come in. So you need to be aware that your body of death is still uh, in, in play here. He's powerless, but he's still in the room. And so it has to be dealt with. And that's an important part, I think, for the Christian life to recognize. So let's look. So once we acknowledge that Christians do sin and will sin in the future and needs to be a warfare, let's talk about the penalties. Uh, A Christian isn't going to go to hell for their sin, are they? Not if they're a Christian. Not if they're a true believer of Jesus Christ. You're not going to hell if you sin. All right? Because your sins are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just your past sin, not just your present sin, but your future sin as well. Christ sacrifices up for all that. You say, well, if that's the case, then I can just keep sinning because it's all forgiven. And what does Paul say to that? God forbid that you have that concept. Just because grace abounds does not mean that you should sin more. It means you should sin less because God's grace is so wonderful. And so that, that line of thinking is directly attacked in Scripture by Paul and Romans. And I encourage you to look at that. And so there are penalties. You're not going to lose your salvation uh, unless that sin is just persistent in your life. There's no warfare. There's no, there's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of, of uh, needing to get, rid, get it out of my life. There, there's just insensitivity to it. In that condition, I really question your salvation at all. Because one of the things Christians should be sensitive to is sin in their life. They should be able to identify it and want to get rid of it. Right, but what, what does it cost us if we get into sin as a Christian? Well, First uh, John 1, 6, we're in First John, let's read that. If we say they have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We will not have fellowship with God. Okay? Uh, we're lying to ourselves to say we have fellowship with God just because we show up on Sunday. Um, but if we're in sin, and sin is a regular part of our life, 
the Holy Spirit will not be at work in your life. You are resisting him. You are quenching him. Those are the two biblical terms. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not resist the Holy Spirit, but rather walk. That's a term of fellowship in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means on a day-by-day basis, I'm checking my attitudes. I'm checking my conduct. I'm checking my speech. I'm checking my thoughts. Are these godly? Are these holy? And when they aren't, I recognize that if I persist in that, I'm going to lose fellowship with God, and God can't work in my life. And if you think that the only time God works in my life is when I'm sitting at my desk with my Bible and my commentaries around me, and that's the only time God ever inspires sermons uh, and sermon material, you're wrong. So my best sermon material is a long ways away from my study. Sometimes it's on the road driving, sometimes it's hanging drywall, sometimes it's my great epiphany about Revelation was I was hanging drywall in my basement. I mean, I know exactly what I was doing and exactly where I was on the, which part of the wall, which piece of drywall I was putting up when it just all clicked. Okay? Sometimes it's while you're playing tetherball. And I wrote that in one of my, in my book that I haven't published. Um, sometimes it's, it's while you're playing tetherball with your kid and all of a sudden, oh, this is kind of like God. Leveling the playing field. And so the Holy Spirit can work, but we have to be in a condition for him to do that. And a loss of fellowship with God because of sin is, is, breaks that. It breaks that opportunity of Holy Spirit to work in your life. And so don't think the whole time the Holy, you should be concerned about the Holy Spirit's fellowship is on Sunday mornings. You're wrong. Or if you're doing godly stuff. Um, godly stuff has a very wide range because it has more to do with your heart than your hands. Okay? And you should, if you're busy with your hands, gardening, if you're working, if you're whatever, and you have an opportunity. But if you're involved with your hands in sin, then you have a broken fellowship and you're in darkness. And so there is not going to be any light understanding of God's word. Um, and so you got to fill your mind with God's word and then at some point, God, if you're maintaining fellowship with him, the Holy Spirit's going to ding, 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 and all the dots start connecting. And that's the evidence of his fellowship. And there are other evidences as well. So not only do we have loss of fellowship with God, we also have loss of fellowship with the saints, or at least we should. What are saints? I use that word very purposely there. What does the word saint mean? What does it specifically, technically mean? Not just set apart, that's sanctification or holy. What are, saints mean set apart ones. Individuals who are set apart. And set apart is also the word holy. So technically saints are holy people. So holy people, saints, should be breaking fellowship with other quote-unquote saints who aren't living holy lives. We are told to do that. Go to 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, there's also Matthew. We could go to other passages that talk about discipline uh, in the church. Okay, First uh, Corinthians. We could spend a lot of time here. First Corinthians five. What happens when you have this immorality in the church? Please notice the instructions to the church uh, of someone who just won't repent. Uh, this, in this case, it's a moral sin that a man is sleeping with his father's wife, probably a stepmother. Uh, and uh, rather than his his um, biological mother, 
And verse 4, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together, notice that, the assembly, the fellowship of the saints, along with my spirit, I'm fellowshipping with you in spirit, though I'm not there physically, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the third element of the fellowship in that verse 4, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, so you have three entities fellowshipping together, the, the local church, the spirit of Paul, and the power of Jesus Christ. It says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Well, he goes on and says, uh, as we go on into this, is that you should not even eat with such a person. What happens if that person is in your home? The Bible says break fellowship with them. And one of the specific things it says is do not even eat with such a person. Because that is the most intimate form of physical fellowship that we have outside of the marriage relationship, is eating together. And, and when I study that, and you know I've been studying that, and I've been writing on it uh, in my spare time, uh, that this is a big deal to me for the last few years. Uh, that this is one of the most intimate acts we are to have with one another. And, and it says, listen, do not even eat with such a one that if they claim to be a Christian and are living in, in sin, unrepentant sin, that we don't even meet with such an individual, that we exclude them from fellowship. And, um, and frankly, we don't practice that, and we don't practice the idea of turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Essentially, we are breaking physical discipline with them because they broke spirit or physical fellowship with them because they have broke spiritual fellowship with us and God's word, Paul, and God himself. So we break physical discipline to show them that they have broken spiritual discipline with us. And so they initiated it because of their actions, and we are reciprocating to, for a purpose. Not to punish us, this is not punitive, this is restorative. We are trying to get their attention to bring them to their own senses, you should be uh, repenting and, and getting this fixed. And then we can go back into... Now, does this mean you can't eat with unbelievers? No, they're unbelievers. Okay, you should have them over to your house. You should, you should engage them. And because you're not really fellowshipping, you're ministering God, you're ministering the gospel in that context, in an intimate context. Um, but when we talk about fellowship between saints, now we have to do this. I remember in one church, uh, we had to institute church discipline, and we went through the whole stages, stage after stage after stage, uh, trying to bring them to repentance. And we finally came to the very final stage, and that final stage was, was excommunication. So we removed them from church membership and fellowship. We had an extensive service uh, of all, and three families visited that Sunday. We had three families visit the church that Sunday. This is up in Rio Rancho at Charity Baptist. And, and three families come in. I'm like, oh man, of all the weeks for us to have three different families visit the church the same week we're having church discipline on, this, on these people because of their persistent sin that they would not respond to. And, of course, they weren't there. Um, and so we have church discipline. Um, by the way, all three families stayed. 
interesting, isn't it? Watching us do church discipline, all three families stay, and the ones that are still in town are still in that church. And so in comes, I remember, I remember them very well. In come the Coelho's, in come the Donofrio's, and in come the Wilson's. All three visited the same Sunday, and we were having church discipline on somebody. I was like, oh, this, they're never coming back. Well, they never didn't come back until they moved. And so, but here's what did happen. After we instituted church discipline, one of the deacons took the couple out to eat. After we just said we are going to break fellowship with them, we instituted fellowship with them in violation of this. And so this is a very important thing. It should be taken seriously. And we had the same situation happen in this church. We said this person is under church discipline. And we gave specific instructions to specific people. Do not have contact with this person. And within three days, everybody in the church under that description made contact with that person within three days. Every one of them. None of them are in our church right now. None of them. Not the person that sinned, not the, the people that, that violated the instruction. Do not have communication with this person. So this is important. And we take it lightly that somehow that rule doesn't apply to me. You have now walking in darkness because you're fellowshipping with those fellowshipping in sin. And you say you know better than God's word. You're putting yourself above the, the, descript, the instructions of God's word. And this is a mistake. You should break fellowship with Christians who claim Christ and are walking in sin. You should break fellowship with them, even if it's a familial fellowship. And, and I'm not telling you something I'm not willing to do and have not had to do in the past. To this day, I have family members that I have no fellowship with. Because God's word is true. And either we're holy and we're saints or we're not. And I'm not going to tolerate the mixture. Let's go on. The discipline from God in Hebrews 12, also in Corinthians, it says some of you sleep, some of you are not well. We could go to that passage as well in Corinthians because they're taking the Lord's table uh, wrongly. And so someone got sick, some ill. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about it as well, that you, you, people uh, have discipline because God loves you as a son. Whom does a, son, who does a father love that he doesn't discipline? That's the passage in Hebrews, 4, uh, Hebrews 12, 4 and 5. And if God deals with you as with sons, then you are his own. If he doesn't deal with you as sons, then you're not his. And so how does God discipline us? Well, Corinthians tells us some of you got sick. Some sickness is because of sin. Did I say all sickness for Christians is sinful? Thank you. All right. Some sickness, though, is. What is the determining factor? Which is the determining factor? You get sick. Is it because of your sin, or is it because you live in a sinful world? Because God's doing something else in your life. What's the determining factor? If you have unconfessed sin, are you willing to? The first, you see, what we always do is we get sick. Oh, I'm in a sinful world. We never even think, is there unconfessed sin in my life that I need to get resolved? That never crosses our mind that that should be the first step when I am ill. The first step we think, I need some Tylenol. You know, where is that NyQuil stuff? I feel, always feel good after NyQuil. All right? And I'm one of the guys that 
NyQuil just knocks me out. I take a half dose and I'm out for 14 hours. So, um, yeah, half a dose. And so uh, I try to tell people that and doctors, and they don't believe me, and they give me normal doses by my weight, and then I'm out for like two days. And they're like, what happened? Oh, well, I told you, you know, give me half whatever you're going to give anybody else. Um, and so uh, we don't think about sin as the first box to check. Ha- is there sin- unrepentant sin in my life? You should be asking yourself that question. I'm not going to come up to you and say, all right, what's the sin? I'm not going to do that. All right, if you have unrepentant sin and God is disciplining you with illness, with sickness, and even with death, physical death, oh, can people die because there's unrepentant sin in their life? Yes. It happened to the Corinthians. Do you think God doesn't operate by the same principles today? You're a fool. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So yes, some people die because of unrepentant sin. Some people are ill because of unrepentant sin. God disciplines his sons. And it's better sometimes for a Christian in sin to die than to live. Now, if you persist in living and you're claiming Christ and you're really not his son and everything's going well for you, don't sit there and say, ah, oh, that's not true. Rather, you should say, well, well, maybe I'm not a child of God because Hebrews says if you are his child, he will discipline you. If you're not his son, eh. I don't discipline other, children, other people's children. I don't go to the store and try to correct every child that's misbehaving. They're not my kid. If my kid disobeys, I'm all over it. Well, that's the way God works. He's not there to discipline unbelievers because they're going to be in hell forever. That's their punishment, but you're not. So your punishment is here now. So let's be alert to the fact that maybe we need to address sin issues before we run to the to the to the uh, urgent care before we run to the medicine cabinet. Maybe we need to drop on our knees and, and ask the Lord, what am I, you know, is there sin in my life? And really truly consider our ways. And then the last one is death. I've already referenced that. And yes, it is possible. And we should understand that that, that is ultimate uh, penalty by God or discipline by God. It's better for you to die and come home than let you uh, disgrace me by living in sin. Okay, any questions on any of that? It's a lot of content, a lot of issues we could delve on for a long time. Any questions, though? So what do you do when you sin? 1 John 1, 9, you know it. What do you do? Confess it. Get it taken care of. Don't cherish it. Don't hide it. Don't try to get away with it. You can't get away with it with God. And that's foolishness. That's your, your old nature influencing you. Don't be such a fool. Just confess it and, and ask for help. And, and if you're having consistent problems with it and you can't get over it, then reveal it to others. Invite others into your life and tell them, I'm struggling with this sin. Uh, can you? And, and so, you know, especially the sources of the temptation. You know, go to the source. If it's a Christian source of your problematic sin, go to the source and say, hey, this leads me to sin. Can you imagine what would have happened in the Corinthian church if the weaker believers just gone and started, hey, you eating that meat really bothers me. What would a mature Christian do? Go grow up. You should die. No. 
what should my churches do? Well, then I won't eat it around you. That bothers you. You won't see me buy it in the store. You won't at the marketplace where there's the idol and they, so the idol's prevailing over the meat sold so you know that it's been, we know the idol's nothing and the meat is not cursed or blessed. It's just meat. Um, but to that younger believer, it bothered him. So what do you do? Well, Paul says, I'm mature enough to say, I don't have to eat meat around you. You don't have to say, I can give that up. Okay? That's what we do. So when we have persistent sin, confess it, and he'll cleanse you. If it's something that you just can't get the victory over, enlist some help. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Be in God's word. Fill your mind with good things. What does Philippians say? What are you supposed to meditate on? There's a whole list. You know the whole list there in Philippians 4? Things to meditate on? Yeah, no, that's Galatians 5. You're talking about the fruit of the Spirit? All right, let's go to Philippians 4. That's a pretty weak response. This is such an important area. Let's make sure we know it. Philippians chapter 4. Fill your mind with these things and ask yourself, are the influences in my, in my life filling my mind with these things? Are my friends filling my mind with these things? Is my entertainment filling my mind with these things? Is, is my activity filling my mind with these Is my conversation filling my mind with these things? Is my reading material filling my mind with these things? Uh, verse 8, finally, brother, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the way to deal with it if you have persistent sin, is to adjust your life. And sometimes you just have to run. Right? At some point, Joseph just had to run away. <laughs> and it cost him his job. It cost him his clothing because <laughs> she grabbed him. But uh, you just have to run sometimes. Flee. Isn't that what Paul tells Timothy? Flee youthful lust. Sometimes you have to get out of the environment. If it's causing sin in your life that you're not getting victory over and can't bring under, under control by the Holy Spirit, his word, uh, and help. Sometimes you have to get out of that environment. Get away from those people. Flee them. Flee it and get away. And God will honor you. You might have to go through prison first, but eventually you'll get there. That's what happened to Joseph. He ran away from temptation and landed in jail where there are no women to, to falsely accuse you, right? And that might be the course. I don't know. Um, but get that sin out of your life. Uh, a lot of people are teaching, and, and that's really, I'm le on letter E. Um, I've already gone through letter E. I did it out of order. Uh, there's one thing I want to adjust, address in letter D. A lot of people think, well, if I'm forgiven, it's forgotten. How many of you heard that? God forgives and forgets. Is that true? Not in Numbers 14. If you don't know the story, that is where Israel is getting ready to go and has disobeyed God and they've repented because the, God said, go up there. Remember, the 12 spies went up there. 10 came back with a bad report. Everybody listened to the majority because the majority are always right. Every American would have listened to the 10 and ignored the two. <clears throat> Every vote ever taken in God's word that wasn't unanimous, the majority were wrong. Think about that. You go to the polls. Uh, and so they listened to the 10 and not the two. It seemed reasonable. Uh, and 
they didn't go up and then they were penalized by God. They were sorry. They, you know, they had all this judgment and they, they repented of it. And God says, I forgive you. Nevertheless, that's a very scary word. I forgive you. Nevertheless, none of you who followed the ten, in fact, none of this whole generation except for the two, are going to enter the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. Everybody 20 years old and up, except for Joshua and Caleb, are going to die, and that included Moses. Wow. That's a forgiven people who have to live the consequences of their sin. And so um, I've had to deal with this where, you know, well, why has God given me, allowed me to contract AIDS when I've turned away from the homosexual lifestyle? Well, that's the consequence of you being in the homosexual lifestyle, sin. Not lifestyle, it's sin. You committed that sin, here's a consequence, you're saved, praise God, and, and now don't question God because there are consequences to sin that outlast your forgiveness. But they will not last into eternity. And that's what you should be praising God for. Okay, so my college track coach at a Christian school, this happened to his son, who was just a little bit younger than me. I, my sophomore, junior year, his freshman year, and so we had relationships with, with uh, the elders, older ones with the younger ones and such, and, and that happened to him. It's like, oh, why she, well, this is a consequence. And we think, well, and I've had people say, why can't I be uh, an officer in a church, a pastor, a deacon? Uh, well, you're divorced. Okay, that, this is a consequence of that. Does that mean divorce is unforgivable? No, it's forgiven, nevertheless. This is a consequence here. It's not of consequence in heaven. It's not a consequence in your prayer life and your uh, opportunity to be holy as he is holy. It's not a consequence of that. But, but in terms of church leadership, it's, this is a consequence. There are other consequences, too, that, that you just have to deal with that. You know, if you marry somebody that's an unbeliever, um, you can ask God's forgiveness. That doesn't get, mean you get to walk away from the relationship, does it? You're stuck. You got to live with that. Is it going to be happy days? No. You're going to have some really hard days. That's a consequence. But you're forgiven. Okay, God can forgive you and still have consequences. Please understand that with sin. All right, now for the fun part. We're going to have seven minutes. Death. You ready? No one was supposed to die. Think about that. We say everything's, you know, there's two things that are inevitable, death and taxes. Neither were inevitable. Neither one need to happen, particularly death. Death is the direct result of sin. And so we were not intended to die. We were not designed to die. We were designed holistically. That is, is a, that your body, soul, spirit, uh, your mind, all of that were intended to be a unit all right, and so death is because of sin, verse number two. But that death is an unnatural retching apart of man's soul, spirit from his earthly body. Uh, this is not a a good thing. This is not God's design. It is a destruction of design. It is undesigning. Uh, and so God's design was that we would stay a unit, body, soul, spirit, mind. All of that would be together and stay together. I have some verses there to correlate with some of this, but uh, 
we want to talk, and let's go to 1 Thessalonians. Though. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Uh, you guys have been studying 1 Thessalonians, right? And Sunday school. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please notice that you are not going to be a ghost, a disembodied spirit at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your, it says your spirit, soul, and body. Now this comes into the compo composition of man, which we studied a little bit. Are you a body, soul, and spirit? Are you, are you four parts, three parts, one part, two part? Uh, you are designed to be a unit. Okay? And there is a retching apart of this oneness by the destruction of your physical body. Uh, but understand that all people will be resurrected, both believers and unbelievers, correct? And so you won't spend eternity as a disembodied spirit, okay? So Charles Dickens got it wrong in A Christmas Carol. You're not going to be loaded down with ghostly chains and drug around the earth for all the bad things you did, you know? And you've got to do good things to, to shorten your chain. That's error. Okay? Everybody's going to have a resurrection. Everybody's going to have a physical body, uh, a material part because that's how God designed us. Some people are going to be having eternal death while others are going to be having eternal life in a physical body that we are going to receive at the resurrection. And, and so uh, we understand that death is a very horrible thing. Uh, the body is going to go back to dust. The Levitic, uh, Ecclesiastes tells us, Levitical, Ecclesiastes tells us and that uh, uh, from earth we came to earth we'll go, uh, but uh, that was not the intention. And in fact, we really don't know why your body ages. Your cells are completely capable, your body is completely capable of replacing every cell in your body with a new cell on a regular basis. Does anyone know how long it takes for your entire body to replace itself? Cell by cell. This is one of those trivia questions. Lifetime, no. Every 10 years or so, depending upon your metabolism, you're a new person. Every single cell of your body has been replaced with new cells. They're just not replaced as well, are they? <laughs> That's why we are you the what decade you are. Um, and so uh, your body is capable of doing that. It's capable of doing that permanently. We don't understand really why aging happens. Uh, somebody will talk about the environmental effects of it and radiation, things like that. And certainly those have a contributing element. Um, but in terms of just general aging, uh, we really don't understand it. Sin is what ruins God's design. A perfect, continuous bodily function. And this... Um, is God is we're oneness and we're ripping it apart, and uh, and that needs to be understood that this is an unnatural thing. Death is unnatural. Stop calling it a natural event because it is not. It is one of the most unnatural events that happens on the earth, including the death of animals for our sustenance. That happened because of sin, and it really wasn't extensive as allowable I should say at least until after the flood when it was commanded then 
that of all flesh on the earth you can, you can eat. And so, yes, you have God's permission to eat meat. But the taking of a life to sustain life is a serious matter, not to take lightly. And that's why we always talk about, you know, if you're going to kill an animal, you better have a really good reason to do that. All right? And because and, cruelty shouldn't be part of our, of our natural, you know, we shouldn't want to inflict death just to inflict death. Because there's something wrong with that. That's satanic and not godly. Okay? So, given that all of this is true, that we have a future body waiting for us, that we are one person, that death is really a temporal thing if we're a Christian, and that we have new life waiting for us to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, as we saw in another study um, of death here earlier, uh, or of sin earlier, uh, what is our... Funerals going to look like? What are our funerals going to look like? So that's the question at this. If this is what death is all about, what are our funerals about? Time of rejoicing. That's interesting. Okay. So let's talk about a believer. So I assume you mean for a Christian. Okay. For a Christian, for a believer. That's the first one on there. Uh, it can be rejoicing. So you're happy they're gone? Sometimes, sometimes we are. Oh, good, they're gone. <laughs> They've been a thorn in my flesh for now. All right, we should be rejoicing that this believer is absent from this body of flesh, this warfare. They've retired from the warfare against sin. Do we ever think about death as that in that way? That's true retirement from the war that you finally get to be a veteran. Right now, we're active duty. Okay, when you pass from this world to the next, you're now a veteran of that warfare. That warfare is over for you. You're into your retirement. They're still in active duty because we're still in this warfare against sin. And so gird yourselves like a good soldier. Ephesians. All right, how else should, what should characterize our funerals? And by the way, while you're thinking about that, um, I have consistently asked you to write out your funeral, uh, what you would like uh, to have happen at your funeral. Whenever I do this study, I ask, I have a file of lots of people's funeral requests. What do you want to, what do you want sung? What do you want preached? I won't preach what you tell me to preach. I'll, if you want to give me a passage, that's okay. Um, but what would you like your funeral to be like? What songs would you like sung? Uh, who would you like to conduct it? Things like that. And I have a whole file folder, and this is a neat little tidbit. I've never had to use one of those. So if you send me one, it's a pretty good chance I'll never have to bury you. That doesn't mean you won't die. It just means I might be out of town when you do. Or you might leave this church and go somewhere else and then die. Uh, but I've never had to actually pull one of those slips out and implement it. I thought I was going to have to with, with Mrs. Waskowski, but I put it back in because she, she came right out of the jaws of death and came back to life um, there and Dawn up here at the hospital. She just died. And uh, you'll be all right. Nothing to fear. Don't even worry about COVID. Okay. You shouldn't have to worry about that anyway. All right, so what should your funeral look like for a Christian? 
singing. That's part of rejoicing is singing. And so don't be afraid to sing and don't sing dirges, okay? Just, oh, no, we should be singing. All right, what else? I love a guy named Val. He, he passed away, and his, his uh, widow came to the funeral dressed exactly how he wanted her dressed. The Brother Schmidt's there? Yep. How did she dress at the funeral? Oh, I do. All in white. All in white. Complete. She had a white outfit on. She said, don't you dare wear black at my funeral, he told her. You wear white. And so she had a nice <laughs> bottom for the occasion. This is my funeral outfit. Uh, it's all white. And I was like, I got to get me one of those suits, all white for every funeral I ever asked, asked to do, show up in white, uh, at least if it's a believer. Okay? Let's understand that, that the funeral of a believer is a precious thing, and it's okay to cry, but realize who you're crying for. Are you crying for them? You're crying for yourself. Those are selfish tears. Poor me. That's what you're crying for. I'm going to miss them. And don't, don't paint it any other way. Your tears at a funeral are selfish. They're for you. They're not for them because they're much happier. My wife is going to cry at my funeral. I know why. Because she's going to be really, really mad that I went before her. I told him he had to stay here till I died. Okay? She's going to be mad at my funeral. Aren't you, honey? She's back there in nursery. We're going to rescue you from those kids here very shortly. So um, think about your funeral. Write it down. I really encourage you to do that. Um, otherwise, relatives of questionable character and beliefs are gonna, and of questionable emotional states are going to decide your funeral. Think about that. Do you really want that? And I've seen relatives ruin funerals because they're emotionally just all weird. Because death does that to us. And they don't think straight. They don't think clearly. They're confused. They they gut reactions. And they have no rationality about it. And they ruin funerals all the time of Christians. That should be good. And I remember doing a funeral for John Bailey's wife and uh, Ruth. And, and we had the funeral. And... He said, Pastor, I'm giving it up to you. And he said, this is what I like, singing. And we did that. And he said, just preach the gospel. And I got up there, and I said, how do you want me to do that? And he says, with a smile. And I smiled the entire funeral. And you can't believe how many people came up to me after that funeral and said, I've never seen a preacher smile the entire time he preached. That's what Pastor Billy asked. Preach my wife's funeral with a smile because she's glad she's there. I'm glad she's there because she's been suffering for a long time and can you do it with a smile i said oh yes i can and i'm i'm happy for the request but it wasn't on a written paper so it didn't count all right and so this is what our funeral should look like it should not be um weeping as those who have no hope the bible says we have a hope a sure hope and it should be evident if any place in a Christian's funeral. And unbelievers should come and say, what is going on? Is that, these people are like having a party. Or do they hate him that much? No. We knew he loved the Lord that much. That we could celebrate him and not mourn over him. What about open caskets? 
given what we just studied about the body, soul, and spirit, what do you think about open caskets? What are they for? They're for goodbyes, okay? Is the person there? So who are you saying goodbye to? <laughs> for good bodies? No, for goodbyes. <laughs> yeah, he's looking good. All right. Um, I personally am against open caskets because it's emphasizing the wrong thing. That body is no longer that person. All right? That person is in heaven. This is what's left behind. This is the body of death. This is the flesh that he warred against all of his life as a Christian in his Christian living. Why are we saying this is the person? And so I, I, I really move Christians away from the idea of open casket funerals and things like that. And even having a viewing that somehow this is a person. I've gone to viewing of Christians. I'm like, oh, this is, this is depressing that I come in here and they've got this casket open and everyone's walking around blah, 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 and I'm coming in the room and say hey praise the Lord you know, and know ah. it's like I said why you got that open you know that's not him yeah and let's not talk about embalming <laughs> don't even get me started on that what a horrible thing why do we embalm because we're trying to make the body last longer we want to deny the decay of death and yes, you can dig up embalmed bodies after years and they're still there because you've just replaced all of their bodily fluids with formaldehyde, okay, a preserv preservation agent. And, um, and no, uh, I, I am very vehemently against that. And yes, in the state of New Mexico, you don't have to be embalmed to be buried thanks to being having reservations in our state. Because the Native Americans do not embalm anybody, and they wrap you up in a blanket and drop you in a hole that they dug. I've been to enough of these funerals in Native American reservations, and I know how it's done. And that's why we have, no, we have very liberal laws in our state for burial. That's not true in every state. In our state, we have very liberal laws, okay, where you do not have to be embalmed. Um, all these, see, I told you all this stuff would come out that we could discuss for hours. Yes. Okay, the question is, do we still, should we still show honor and respect to that person's life and, and body? And certainly we should give respect to that. And in fact, I am not a big advocate of um, incinerating your body. Uh, that has always been the practice of pagans, historically, those who do not believe in the resurrection and nor do we believe in reincarnation. Those are the groups that, that typically burn bodies. Uh, we bury them because we believe in the resurrection, and that has always been the case. That is why they dug up the bones of saints of old, the Romans, the Roman Catholics, and, and even some of the Reformers would dig up the bones of departed saints and burn them because they thought by doing so they would prevent them from participating in the resurrection. That's how strong the idea of burning the body is. So how do we respect and honor the fact that this is part of the person that they left behind, that they're going to have a new body? And how do we have a testimony that we believe in the, in the resurrection is by burial. That is the greatest testimony in uh, action, post-mortem, 
in action of you believe in the resurrection. All right, and so you have a funeral service, but you also have the treatment of the body. And it should be done respectfully. It should be done with, with some dignity. And, and we're not laughing at a body, and, and, but we're not venerating it either. And that balance is, should be shown in our treatment of it. And I really don't think sucking out all your internal organisms and, and draining your blood and putting it in uh, chemicals is, is really honoring it either. Okay? So there's a lot you have to evaluate when you ask about your death, isn't there? Do you want to be embalmed? Do you want to be incinerated? Do you want to be, how do you want to be buried? Where do you want to be buried? And the state of Mexico is really easy to create your own burial plot as well. Uh, and every state's different. Ours is one of the easiest states to do that in. And we've established one up at the Bahamas. So we have our burial plot that we're allowed to bury any family members since all of you are my family. Yes. All right. Joseph wanted his bones out of Egypt and in Israel. Okay, why? And by the way, a lot of Israelites care about being buried near the Golden Gate of Jerusalem. And that's why you, you hike down from the Mount of Olives to, to the temple and you're walking through a graveyard. That's all it is. It's just a giant graveyard because that's where everyone wants to be buried. Uh, and all the important people are buried there. Uh, why? Uh, because they want to they be there. They believe that's where the resurrection will begin and they want to be there at the Golden Gate when Jesus enters it, when God enters it, the resurrection. Okay, so there's lots of information here about where we always used to always bury people with them uh, so that we, because we always believe the resurrection comes from the east, and so we always bury them so they whoop, and they're facing the right direction when they come up. <laughs> That's okay, but it, it, I don't mind that. I mind that a lot less than I must take the cheapest route because that's really not demonstrating the, dignity that we want to give to human life and and it's okay to uh, take some measures now my route is probably the cheapest route because my kids just throw me in a bag take me out to the bahamas take my own tractor dig the hole and dump me in it and that's it and they're done and there's no cost involved at all um and in fact my wife i think can even give me the death certificate i don't know if she still can or not okay but uh please Give some thought to what your funeral should be like, what you, how you like your tr body treated. We always worry about having a will to pass on our stuff. But how do we pass on our faith and our testimony? Why do we have written documents centered on our stuff? Why are you so worried about what happens to your stuff after you die, but you're not concerned about your testimony and your body after you die. It makes no sense. The funeral and the burial is your testimony, the end of your testimony on earth. And that should be a priority in your will. Not, uh, well, I hope they do it right. Because they won't. They won't. You know you have relatives that aren't believers. You know you have relatives that aren't living for the Lord. You know you do. And they're going to want bizarre things. And you can't believe how much they'll pressure um, others that have decision-making power to do those bizarre things. So write it down. Don't just give it to me. Give it to whoever else, too. Think about it and write it down. The unbeliever's funeral is a different story. I've had to do those, too. And they're tough. 
but you can still preach the gospel. And the statement I usually make is they know the truth now. And you should know the truth before. Because you don't want to be where the rich man was. You want to be where Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Um, you want to be in the presence of God. And I can't say that about this person, but they know the truth. And if they were to come back here now, they'd tell you different. Because that's what the rich man said. Please send Lazarus back and warn my brothers. And so I tell them, I'm Lazarus talking to you. From your departed loved one to tell you, do not make the mistake he or she made. And that's a hard sermon to give. Yes. Yes. You hear that a lot. Or they're angels. Correct. They're not. And don't just nod. Take a time to say, I wish that were true. But there's no evidence of that. And I've had to preach a sermon where the parents came out to me afterwards very angry because it was their son's funeral. And I had a similar message, and he said, well, he was baptized as a baby, or he was baptized as a young man. And I was like, listen, you and I have known him his adult life. I've only known him as an adult. I say he wasn't living for the Lord. He was, there was zero evidence. I visited him in the hospital. There was no repentance. There was nothing spiritually going on there, there any evidence that he was a believer. So I'm not going to preach like he's going to heaven. And People get angry at you, but that's the truth, and it's the truth that makes us free. And that freedom is for the living, not for the dead. Okay, please take some time. I know you think you're young and you don't have to worry about that. Um, even at 62, next week, right? Tomorrow you're 62. So, Paul, you're, I know you're 62, but you're still young. Mrs. Fry is old, okay? What are you, 120? Yeah, something like that. Um, write it out. I'll put it in my file folder. You don't know what's going to happen to you. Don't wait. Get it written out. It should be a higher priority to you than I will about your estate because your stuff doesn't matter. But your testimony does. Make it the priority before your last will and testament. Uh, let it be a spiritual thing. Okay, let's... That word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity through your word to really converse about these things. And Lord, we know we're involved in a, engaged in a warfare that sometimes we just feel like we can't win. And yet you've told us that we can be more than conquerors, that we can have victory, that sin really doesn't have power unless we allow it to influence us and draw near to it ourselves, that we can run away. Lord, give us the courage. Give us the moral fortitude to do so on a more consistent basis. And, Lord, that we might encourage one another, strengthen one another to do so as well. And then, Lord, we do pray that even down to our final testimony, should we not live to your coming, that we might glorify you in that uh, environment, that everything we do, everything that is said on our behalf, everything that we communicate uh, might bring praise to your name and tell of the sure hope that we have and of the joy that we have from transitioning from this battlefield into a place of rest. And, Lord, we pray that uh, that might be our, our attitude and, and we long to be in your presence, but, Lord, it is better and more fruitful for your kingdom that we remain here. Let us serve you faithfully. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.